Welcome to another podcast from Best Self Magazine, the leading voice for self-empowerment, holistic health, and authentic living. Hi, Glennon. Hi. Welcome to New York City. Oh, thank you. I love it here. rainy, rainy Friday morning. Thank you for sitting down with Best Self. And if you could just bear with me, I would love to just gush about you for a second and introduce you to our audience. I think I can handle that. I think you can handle that. I like gushing. Yeah. Kick back in your gorgeous silver throne. Glennon Doyle Melton is a writer, mama, dreamer, sought after speaker, love flash mob revolutionary, online community leader, Sunday school teacher, activist, truth teller, hope spreader, who calls herself a recovering everything, and believer in all things brutal. Not beautiful, brutal, and I'll let you explain that in a moment. And in between all of that good stuff, she has written two New York Times best-selling books, Love Warrior, which is number one on the list, and Carry On Warrior. Glennon is the founder of Momastery, an online community reaching millions of people each week. She is also the creator and president of Together Rising, a nonprofit organization that has raised millions of dollars for families around the world through its Love Flash mobs, which has revolutionized online giving. I'm so excited to sit down with you today, Glennon, and to welcome you into New York City again. And I think the best place for us to start would be with your defining brutal. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think I figured out early on that life, the most important parts of life, so for me that would be sobriety, um, relationships, love, faith, these things are so beautiful and also so brutally hard, right? All at the same time, beautiful and brutal. And the thing that I tried to do for so long is numb out the brutal, right? That's what addiction is. It's just kind of a hiding place from pain and numbing out. And if you, if you um, numb the brutal, you don't get to experience the beautiful. So at some point along the line, I just said, okay, I'll take it all. I'll take all of it. Bring it on. I'll take the brutal so that I can have the beautiful... And I think the thing about life is that the beautiful is just a little bit better and uh, more powerful than the brutal. Just enough to make all of this worth it. Right. Right. Life is uh, brutal, but a little bit heavier on the beautiful. Thank you for defining that, because that amongst a million other words in um, Love Where I'd Love to Get To. And it's funny, when I was um, reading this beautiful, beautiful book of yours, and simultaneously uh, drying out my highlighter, Mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, I've got to interview her for Best Self, like me and the rest of the world, of Mm -hmm. course. But, you know, I believe in timing. Mm -hmm. And I actually feel really fortunate that I'm getting to interview you at this point and this time in your life, because in many ways, I feel like you are more cracked open, more activated, mm-hmm. more, as you say, like reckless, like recklessly telling the truth. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. God, it's good to be in your 40s. I tell you what, I would not go back to 30 or 20 for all the money in the world. I feel like the beginning, we just live for everybody else. And we're just trying to fit into all of these boxes and trying to be what the world wants us to be. And then all of that falls apart, right? And then we're free. Right. I feel so free. I feel freer and freer every year. Well, we're lucky if it falls apart. Yep. 
And we're lucky if we like actually travel through it, right? Yeah. It feels to me that you're really full on right now. You're really full, full you. Mm-hmm. You and I were speaking off camera before this, but most people don't realize that there's such an, a, a great amount of time between handing in a manuscript to your publisher mm-hmm. and seeing it on a bookshelf. Yeah. So, so like, like probably like two years, right? Minimum. Right. Yeah. So especially writing a memoir, mm-hmm. which is, you know, chronicling at least like a moment in time of your life, a lot of life happens. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that's hard for some people with Love Warrior because Love Warrior is the story of my life and um, specifically my marriage and the implosion of my marriage and then the healing of my marriage. And it ends with my husband, my ex-husband and I seemingly redeemed, right? Our marriage redeemed. In many ways it was. But the then books end and life goes on. So I, when, when Love Warrior came out, that story had been written two years beforehand. So I'm on the road with people who have just finished my book right. and are so hopeful for my marriage. And right. I have to say, oh, no, 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 that's yeah, over, right? That's done. Right. So when, when you are a writer and you're releasing books, you are always on the road representing um, yourself from years ago. Right. Which is so interesting. So before we get to that, yeah. okay, because I don't want to gloss over the story here. So on the outside, mm-hmm. you know, it just looked perfect. Mm-hmm. You're married, happily married, you've got three kids, a doting husband, a writing career, boom. Mm-hmm. Life cracks open. Yeah. What happened? What, what cracked open? Yeah, so I found out, we went to therapy one day, uh, 12 years into marriage, three kids, career taking off, and my husband told me that he'd been unfaithful to me throughout our entire marriage. So that was a bad day. That's a boom. Yes, yes. I think what I was doing, what so many women do, which is that I had my entire identity wrapped up in the roles that I was um, playing, right? right? I was a wife, I was a mother, I was a writer. At the time, I was a relationship expert. So I remember thinking, well, that gig's probably over. <laughs> Got right? for something else. Right. Look, right. Look That's going to be a hard sell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it really felt like that day, you know, I think as women... We think that the way we're supposed to grow up is we're supposed to become things. Right. I became, I became, I became, I became. And we end up like those Russian nesting dolls. We're just putting on bigger and bigger costumes, right, till we lose ourselves. So the beautiful thing about getting an eviction notice from your life, like I did in that <laughs> therapy session, right? <laughs> like, oh, that's so cute. You thought you were all those things, but not anymore, yeah. right? You've Surprise. been evicted. And what I found out, you know, whether it was my first rock bottom when I got sober or this rock bottom this eviction notice, is that we don't get evicted from our lives unless we're also being invited to a truer life, better life. That so was those sirens ha- are ringing for you. It's the angels, yeah. So that was um, a hard eviction, but what I figured out is that we cannot, as women, put all of our identities in the people that we love or the roles that we play. We cannot put our, our worth and our identity in things that can be taken away from us, right. right? So the reason why you look at me now and think that I'm free and strong is because women who have been to rock bottom in their lives get to experience fully and learn the truth about life, which is that, that the only things you really need are the same things that can never be taken from you, Right? So that's why women who have been through it are the brave ones and the ones who can laugh at the days to come. Right. 
right? Fear just dissipates when you lose what you think you need and you realize you didn't need it right. in the first place. And also, let's be clear, you, you got this news, but you did try to save your marriage. Mm-hmm. You did try to go to therapy, to hold on to it, to scramble, pick up For all years. the pieces. Mm-hmm. But I think that probably also it's fair to say that you know, we, we, we need to investigate. We need to find out, is this salvageable? Mm-hmm. Do I want to stay? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and I mean, the beauty of that time is I'm not sure that it, I mean, I don't know, I'm not sure it was to save my marriage. I just knew there was some self-saving that needed to go on, right? right? That these crises don't happen to us unless there's something there, like something to learn, right? I mean, I believe completely that the people that come into our lives are there for a reason. So what I needed to figure out was what this you know, tragedy, pain had come into my life to teach me. And I remember going to my therapist and saying, I am in more pain than I've ever been in. And I don't know if my marriage will be saved, but you need to help me figure out how to use this pain so it's not wasted, right? And that's when, I mean, that whole journey, God, it was so wrapped up in, in sex and intimacy that the only way through it was for me to go back to when I was 10 years old and figure out why I became bulimic. Right. That experience drove me backwards, and I ended up starting this work that has ended up freeing me. And it didn't have so much to do with saving my marriage, right? right? It had to do so with me becoming whole. It was a catalyst. Right. Everything that's, is a catalyst. That's what I always say. Is I was going to ask you about um, now. In hindsight, did you see the red? Do you see the red flags that you missed? Or another way to say it maybe is um, perhaps like and this is this also is in line with going back to that ten-year-old. We leave breadcrumbs for ourselves. Mm. There's a trail that we can go back and mm-hmm. we can, can recollect, you know, recollect something that leads us back to that place that you needed to go back to, to, yeah. to really like delve into that authentic healing. Completely. And that's the beauty of therapy. And that's the beauty of being an artist, a writer. I mean, when I talk like this, I feel like I need to specify that when I was going through this, I was not waking up every day and saying, there must be a gift in this. Yeah. And, I, and I would just like to mine this for some wisdom. And I just feel like this experience is very spiritual, right? I just woke up every day and cursed and cried and right. rude the day I was born. Rabbit. Okay, right. right? I hated everything and everyone, and I would say, why me all day, right? So I just want to be clear that this, all of this wisdom came in the reflection, in the writing of Love Warrior, not the experience of Love Warrior. When I was experiencing infidelity and trying to save my family and fear for my children, I was just surviving, right. right? Which is what most of us do in in those times. It is so important for people to have some sort of time to reflect on what happens to us. Right, there's got to be an arc. Right, the growth grew in the reflection, not right. in the happening of it, if that makes sense. The writing of Love Warrior is where I figured all of this out and got um, all of this wisdom and courage. When it happened to me, I was just trying to make it through the day. So... Your online community is called Monastery, mm-hmm. and you literally started writing in a closet. Yeah, I've come out of the closet You've in so many it, ways. I, uh, yes. You said it, but yes. bump. Go ahead. Okay, now just don't get too ahead of the story. Sorry. <laughs> Teaser. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, and I was really thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, just in terms of your writing, here you are home, taking care of these three kids, you spoke very candidly in your writing about this loneliness Mm -hmm. that you 
you you weren't supposed to be lonely when you got married. You weren't supposed to be lonely when you had a family, but there was this reality. Mm-hmm. And this community, which literally millions of people follow mm-hmm. every week. Yeah, it's wild. And I was, you know, thinking, like, why? Mm-hmm. What is it? What is it about, you know, a woman who's writing in the closet in between diaper changing that is striking such a chord? Honesty, right? I mean... The inspiration for Momastery was a recovery meeting, right? So when I found out I was pregnant with my first child, I was wasted when I found out I was pregnant. So I had been an alcoholic for a decade and a half. I'd been bulimic for longer than that. I held up that test and thought, oh, my God, like this could be my last invitation to come back to life, right? So I went to my first recovery meeting that day that I found out I was pregnant. It was Mother's Day. Um, subtle. No subtle. intended. Yeah, got it. Right. Okay. So well, you were drunk, so you yeah, that's right. It may have been Mother's Day. It may have been. No, it was. I remember just sitting in that recovery meeting and listening to these people tell their stories and thinking, "Oh my God, these are the first honest people I've ever met in my life." Right. In that circle is where I figured out this is powerful. This is freedom. Being able to share your story bravely with no fakeness um, and no act. And then the flip side of that, which is listening to other people's stories without judgment, without trying to fix anybody, right? That's the beauty of these recovery groups. That's the key. It's the freedom, the, the, the respect. It's being brave enough to tell your story and kind enough to hear other people's. Right, without your own crap and your own lens judging them. So and I just remember thinking, I was so sad when they made me leave the meeting. I was like, oh my God, I have to go back to my life? Like this is, I want to live here, right? So then I thought, why is it that we can only be this honest in little dark basements of churches one hour a week? That's so weird. If that one hour a week is so powerful, what if we could do this out in the open? What forgot, like what if we could just actually be fully human and honest with each other in real life, right? And that is where the idea of monastery came in because a monastery... And a mama. Is a place where, you know, sensitive spiritual people retreat from the real world because they feel like there's a better way to live. And then they create intentional communities that are based on um, love and freedom and kindness. And so I thought, why couldn't we make a, a place like that on the Internet? Right. Well, I know how powerful your words are from reading the book. And... There's this passage I just want to read, which really I would say is like um, an ode to stay-at-home moms everywhere. Mm. And I'm not a stay-at-home mom, but it's like it just like latched on to my heart. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is the honesty that you have the ability to convey. And this is why millions of people are reading what you're writing every day. But you said this is in reaction to Craig coming home, your husband, ex-husband coming home and saying... How was your day? Such an aggressive question. How was your day? How was your day? So, yeah. And you said, (laughs) how was my day? It was a lifetime. It was the best of times and the worst of times. I was both lonely and never alone. I was simultaneously bored out of my skull and completely overwhelmed. I was saturated with touch, desperate to get the baby off of me, and the second I put her down, yearned to smell her sweet skin again. This day required more than I'm physically and emotionally capable of while requiring nothing from my brain. I had thoughts today, ideas, real things to say, and no one to hear them. Amen. Yeah, you good time. It's that, it's that um, nobody, <laughs> but it's your ability 
to encapsulate like that you just painted such a picture yeah and because i mean god this is cultural idea that that is very specific to our country actually which is that you if you admit that anything is hard that's like an admission of failure right or that anything's complicated that that's an admission of failure because we like black and white being a mother is beautiful right and that's, it, that's it that's it that's <laughs> it Jesus, being a mother is the hard. If, you're not, if it's not hard for you, maybe you're not doing it right. Right. Right? Like, these things in life, marriage, family, God, I often find that they're hardest and most complicated for people who are doing them right, who are showing up every day vulnerably and with their whole selves and getting knocked down and getting back up again. These things are hard as hell, and they're supposed to be because they're the most important things in life. Right. Right. I've been a stay-at-home mom, I've been a working mom, I, all these labels, I know we hate them, but I still think, and you know, half the world will be furious with me for this, but I still think that being a stay-at-home mom when I did not have work outside the house and I was home with those babies all day was the hardest momming I've ever done. Yeah. Bless these women warriors. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In Love Warriors spoke of this moment where you came across something on, I think it was on Facebook, mm -hmm. and it was the 25 things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you speak of that? Yeah, well, I mean, by this point, I had, I'm in recovery meetings often. I am like, where can we tell? I just want to be able to tell this truth in real life, right? But I couldn't find anywhere. People in playgroups, you know, people at church, which is so funny. Like, I went to right. church thinking that that's where people would be honest, right? Of course, because God, right? And there, people were acting like everything was perfect more than anywhere else. And I thought, that is so funny. Oh, my God. Like, acting like you're perfect at church is like getting really dressed up for an x-ray. I love that quote. You know, it's like, quote. God knows we're jacked up. Like, right. what are we doing here if we can't even be honest here? So I was exhausted with all of the pretending. And, um, yeah, there was this thing going on on Facebook. People were just listing things about themselves. And I thought, oh, I could do that. So I sat down and pounded out a list that was like my truthiest truth, right? I was talking about alcoholism and bulimia and all of it. And anyway, it turned out everyone else was doing it on a little bit lighter scale. Like I remember my number six was, I'm recovering food and alcohol addict, but I still find myself missing booze in the same twisted way we can miss those who repeatedly beat us and leave us for dead. <laughs> so true, yeah. right? That is true. Yeah. But my friend, I, my friend Lisa's number six was, my favorite snack food is hummus, right? right? So that's when Don't I figured out, oh, we're not doing right. that the real here. Not the real 25. Right. We're just saying stupid crap about ourselves. We're not, right. we're not even being honest here. So anyway, that was a hard day because I wanted to die because I had not, I couldn't, that was like my lightest one, right? That was like the most lighthearted one. Um, but then later I got really brave because I started opening these emails that people had written to me after reading my list. And they were from people who I had known my whole life. But they had never really told me their stuff, right? Like, we had been so busy trying to pretend to each other like everything That's was such perfect. That's such a truth. Yeah. Like, everything was shiny. That we had never brought to each other this, the real stuff, the stuff that keeps us up at night, right? The, the heavy stuff that we were actually meant to help each other carry. Connect on. Right. So um, there was something about me saying, okay, here I really am. Not my representative, right. not my shiny I self, know. but like my real self, here I am, that made them finally be comfortable and brave enough to say, okay, then here I am too. Right. 
right? So these emails said things like, you know, my sister's bulimic. She's been bulimic for 15 years. We don't know what to do. My marriage is falling apart. I cry myself to sleep every night. We're out of money. We're, I mean, on, and I just thought, oh, my God, this truth-telling thing is like a key that can actually unlock people. Right. From this suffering in silence. Yeah. Which is amazing. It's like... Quiet, well, quiet desperation, right. right? We all live in quiet desperation. And so I remember saying, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a truth teller. Because I think all you need to be a truth teller is shamelessness. Right. And I was born without it. I don't know where shame is. I can't find it. I just never have had it. Really? No. No. I mean, well, maybe the first 25 years of my life. Maybe that was what all the booze and addiction was about. Shame. But... What about um, guilt? Well, I mean, guilt is good. Guilt is when you say, I acted like a jerk and I'm going to change it. Like, I acted in a way that is unworthy of who I am. Shame says who I am is unworthy. Mm. Right? Guilt presupposes that you know yourself to be better than you just behaved. It's a correction. Right? I am better than that. But shame is poison. Shame is I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. And shame is just an excuse. I mean, also, shame is so prideful, right? Shame is the same thing as pride. It's the flip side of pride. Pride says, I'm better than everyone, so I don't have to show up for life. And shame just says, I'm worse than everybody, so I don't have to show up for life. They're both just denials of our common humanity, which is nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's more ready to show up than anybody else. It's just that some people show up before they're perfect and before they're ready. And all the beauty and good in the world is done by those people, right? It's actually a very level playing field. So anyway, I just think that pride and shame are for wimps and I don't believe in them. And so every time I feel shame creeping in, every time I feel shameful about anything, that's when I know that that's what I need to write about. Right. Right, because things that are on the inside that we feel shame about, the longer they stay in the dark, the bigger and scarier they get. Right. And we pull them out into the light. And so for me, that's putting them on paper. The second they get out into the light, they're so much less scary. You know, shame can't handle light. The second it's out, it just disappears. You had this beautiful quote when you were writing the 25 things, because I was envisioning you. Here you are in your closet. Literally, mm-hmm. you were writing. You had your, your writing closet, your sacred little... Yeah, and I just, we had no space. Right. I lived in a very small house. The closet was the only place I could get away. And by the way, every once in a while, I would look up in my closet and my entire freaking family would be in my closet with me. (laughs) One time, I'm like, I get out. Yeah, you're like this sacred space. Get out. Yes. You said, as I finish and stare at my writing, I feel more like I'm looking into a mirror than I have ever felt looking into an actual mirror. Mm -hmm. There I am, the inside me on the outside. As I read and reread my list, trying to get to know me, I hear crying upstairs. Emma is awake from her nap, and she needs me. She'll have to wait, because I'm finally awake, too, and I need me first. Oh, that's good. I like that. That's good, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've actually thought about that quote, that, that sentence a lot, that I felt more like looking into a mirror than I ever have looking into a mirror. And I think that for For writers who are women, it's a very empowering thing to see your words on paper because um, so much of how we experience women has to do with appearance, right? And so writing or art is one of the only ways that women can put themselves into the world and actually be seen 
separate from how they appear. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right? So, um, and, and I've had a very confusing relationship with food and body and appearance in my whole life. So for me to be able to put all of that aside and say, okay, here's the inside me. Go ahead and see that. Go ahead and judge that. Do whatever you must do with that. The writing me is realer to me than the physical me. Right. I just uh, recently attended a uh, writer's festival. Pan I went to a panel discussion um, of memoir, which mm -hmm. is my favorite genre. Mm -hmm. And memoirist Danny Shapiro. I love Danny oh, Shapiro. She's wonderful. She said... We don't always know what we're going to write about. It chooses us. Mm -hmm. She also said, if you censor the story, you'll never know what it is meant to be. Listen, I wrote either two or three different book proposals before Love Warrior. I did not want to write about that most painful time in my life. I wanted to write anything else, and the book proposals sucked. They were terrible. And I kept thinking, why can't I figure this out? And the reason why they sucked is because I wasn't writing the thing that I was called to write. Did you have someone sort of pushing you along or saying, like, a guide? And I mean, you know, in, in a good way, like in a dream keeper way, saying, totally. girl, you got to write this other Yeah, story. I mean, my, one of my dearest friends is my editor, Whitney Frick. She's amazing. I know that everybody knew I was going to write Love Warrior. They were all just pretending that we weren't, right? Guiding me along, letting me handle as much as I could handle at the time. But, you know, I remember thinking, okay, so I'm a writer, and because I'm a writer, the God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, gives me st a story to write. And so if I don't write the hell out of this story, I'll just have to stop being a writer. But you can't say you're a writer and not write the story that the universe has given you to write. So two choices. I can either do my best and write the hell out of this Love Warrior book, or I can be something else. Right. But I can't keep calling myself a writer right. if I don't do this. I don't want to gloss over this uh, representative mm. because I love that part of the book when you said this inner self mm -hmm. and then your representative mm -hmm. and that inner dialogue and the representative tells the inner self, I'm fine, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. This is what we portray to the world. Mm -hmm. so we do. We have our representative selves. That's who we send out into the world. And I think that there's a small window that we're allowed to reveal that representative. So Is that it's in a the minivan rolling down that window? It's a script. In the yeah, I mean, it's a script, right? Like when people say, how are you? There's five things you're allowed to say, right? You're, supposed to talk, you're allowed to talk about the weather. Right. You're allowed to say, I like your scarf. Right. I like your hair. Like yeah. just certain things. You're not supposed to say, oh, actually, my marriage is, is in the shitter and I, um, uh, I am feeling really overwhelmed lately. And, you know, you're just not allowed to actually say those things that you're really thinking. And there's probably reasons for that, right? This is what helps our society stay. <laughs> Right. So not to freak out, but I just really believe that there has to be a place for every woman and every man to be able to reveal that true voice, right? There has to, and that this is what recovery meetings are. This is what, you know, some, for some people it's coffee with a dear friend. For some people it's dancing. For some people it's writing. You know, the Virginia Woolf said we, every woman needs a room of her own, and I certainly didn't have that. I was in a closet, right? But I do believe that every woman needs an hour of her own a day, right? A day, an hour where she can step outside of all of her roles and she can just be her soul, right? So this is where that voice that we hide all day can come out and onto the paper and that feels like freedom. So you were claiming that in your writing, in your closet? Absolutely.
And kicking everyone out of that closet. <laughs> right, right. This is right. the hour where I'm not a mom and I am not a wife and I am not a nonprofit right. president and I am not, I am just the, this soul that I was born with, that I will die with. And I feel more committed than ever to that internal voice. You know, I mean, I think that half the things I've done in my life, I did because external voices were telling me that was the way, what I was supposed to do and who I was supposed to be as a woman. And I ran that ship into the shore, right? It just didn't work. And, it, and so many times I talk to women after, you know, they've done something that they knew. Like their inner voice oh, was saying, always, no, yeah. no, no. Right. Or their inner voice was saying, yes, yes, yes. But all the voices and expectations of the world were saying the opposite. And as women, we are just so addicted to listening to outer voices instead of our inner People voice. pleasing. Because, well, and, and let's not blame ourselves for it. I mean, right. from the time we're born, what is the compliment our culture can bestow upon women? She's so selfless. Like, let's think about that for a minute. Right. The ultimate compliment for a woman is you do not even have a self. Right. Right? And then we wonder, and then we get right. to this age where we can't find ourselves anymore, and we wonder why. Right. That's why the most revolutionary thing a woman can do is to begin to practice stillness Listen for that wisdom on the inside, block out all the outside, mm. because there is a, a knowing, there is a voice that rises up in stillness inside of a woman, and you can call it whatever you want. I call it God. You can call it intuition. You can call it wisdom. I have a dear friend who has some God issues. She calls it Sebastian. I don't think it freaking matters what you call it. Right. But I think it's Just call it. Call it. It doesn't, right. exactly. This rising, this, this, this knowing settles in or rises up or whatever you want to call it, and it will tell you. It will tell you what to do next. It will never give you a five-year plan. Right. Okay, I begged it for this. It will not. Hey, it, listen, you're the one that's running around on 10% on your battery, right? Amen. <laughs> you know, on that 10, all that 10% is coffee. <laughs> but I do believe, I mean, I have a tattoo on my wrist that says, be still. Because whenever I don't know what to do, it's just because I haven't checked back in. Right. Right, be still and know. Next right thing, one thing at a time takes us all the way home. Uh, be still. That, you know, those are words of yours. Um, the be still, the, the little voice. Yeah. The, Connecting to that. When did you really, finally in this process, connect to that? Mm-hmm. And say, I know exactly okay, when. I'm here. This mm-hmm. is it. Well, this was another, another gift. No, it is the single gift of the marriage implosion. Is that when... The crisis gift. The crisis gift, right? Well, crisis means to sift. Right. right, we all want to avoid crisis in our life because we right. think it's a bad thing. Crisis is an opportunity. The word crisis literally means to sift, like a child who goes to the, the beach and lifts up the sand and watches all the sand fall away, hoping that there'll be treasure left Some over. Treasures, exactly. Right, crisis comes into our life so that we have to hold up our life in front of us, watch everything fall away that we thought we need, and we can find out what's left over. Right. So during that time, I mean, my marriage imploded. I was already. Um, a writer. I was on the road constantly. I was out there, okay? Um, Everyone on earth had advice for me. Everybody knew what I should do, right? The church had some serious ideas about what I should do. My family, the interwebs, you know, everybody, my publishers, everybody. And I realized along the way, I'm going to lose my mind if I try to please all these people. There literally is no way to please all these people because they all want opposing things, So the only way I'm going to survive this and know that I'm doing the right thing for myself is to shut all of it out and go inside. It was survival, 
right? So I promised myself during that time that I was going to take 15 minutes a day and just be really quiet and listen to myself, to God, whatever you want to call it, whatever that deepest voice is. And it started working. Because the thing is, it didn't have anything to do with right or wrong. What's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do? These are socially constructed ideas, right? The next thing is never about right or wrong. It's just about precise. Right? What is the precise next thing that I'm supposed to do? And that only comes directly to you. That can't come from any institution in your life. And you're the one that's got to live with it. Right. And then you get to this point where you realize as women, like, what is best for me? The world has convinced us somewhere along the line that if we choose what's best for us, that it will be screwing everyone we care about. There could be nothing further from the truth. Right? What is right, right and true and good and precise for me is inevitably what is right and true and precise and good for my people. Right? And I figured that out when I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm staying in a marriage and in a relationship that I know is not right for me, for my children. And one day I sat down and thought, but would I want this for my children? Amen. I am staying for my daughters. Would I want my daughters to stay in this? Right. Because what would you be saying? Future tripping. If I they would were be in this saying, honey, you can love and forgive a man and still not want to be married to him for the rest of your life. Right. Right? And if you want your daughters to be warriors who live um, true to themselves and aren't lying and aren't pretending, then you better do that. Right. Because they're not watching what we say. They're watching what we do. So when I figured out that what I would want for my girls is for them to be honest, right, and to trust that if they did the next right thing and the, and the um, truest thing, that the universe would handle its business after that. And I'd better do it. So Craig was unfaithful to you, but at the end of the day, you were unfaithful to yourself. You this know? book and this journey I thought was about betrayal. Right. I thought it was about betrayal that happens between a man and a woman. This book was about me learning how not to betray myself, 100%. And self-betrayal, that's the, the end of that, this book. That's what I figured out. The only promise I will make is that I will never betray myself again. And I think that self-betrayal is allowing the fear voices in my head, what will they think, what will they think, what will happen, to override the still small voice of truth that knows what to do. So has that gotten easier? Yeah. So it's like once you, it's like building blocks. Yeah. Once you do it, it's like. That's is, the good this, news. Right. Once you start trusting that still small voice. I mean, I've had, women are so convinced to be selfless that when I, sometimes when I talk to women about this voice, they don't know what I'm talking about. Right. And they'll say, I don't think I have it. <laughs> right? I don't think I have that voice. I don't even know what I want for yeah. dinner. Right? I, I ask myself what I want for dinner, and I don't know. Yeah. Where is the knowing? Right? And um, it's so interesting. I do this with little kids. So my son has these girls that come over all the time. He's 14. And I will walk into the room and say, okay, you guys, do you want um, pizza or, or chicken for whatever for dinner? So all the boys will yell out exactly what they want, and the girls will look at each other. You're like, what, what are we, we going to have? What? What do I don't want? know. I don't know. This happened so many times that I actually said, no, okay, that's enough, okay? So I called the girls all into the other room one day, and I sat them down, and I said, okay, here's the thing. This house is going to be a safe place for you guys to have opinions, okay? You actually have opinions. 
You know how the boys just said what they want? You can also do that, okay? But they didn't know what I was talking about, so this, we had to do an exercise. <laughs> we're gonna practice this. We did, yeah. this is what we did. I got a quarter out, and I said, this is what we're gonna do. I'm gonna flip this, this coin, okay? Heads, pizza. Tails, chicken nuggets. I'm flipping it now, what do you want it to be? They're like, heads! <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, that's your voice! <laughs> you want pizza! <laughs> You want pizza? That's you your voice. You have to, with, sometimes with girls and women, you have to actually trick your voice into speaking, right? Because we're so convinced that if we do, we're selfish or whatever. So um, now I do that with, I actually do that with my friends sometimes. My friend came over, her whole family wants, dying for her to go to nursing school. She doesn't want to go to nursing school. She wants to go be a yoga instructor. I know that. She's talking, 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 but this and this and this. Flip the quarter. Tails! Yoga! You want to go to yoga. So right. I think sometimes once we trust that voice to make little decisions for us, pizza or chicken nuggets, we hear it, we do that, then the decisions get bigger and bigger until we trust ourselves. We're validated. Yes! You know, once like, something validated, something happens that falls in line that validates it, mm -hmm. it's like suddenly we can trust it. Right. Or, right? God forbid, we say we want something and the whole world doesn't fall apart. Right. The world's not going to fall apart. And if it does fall apart, it was a world that needed to fall apart for you to build the world that you were supposed to live in. There's plenty of worlds that need to fall apart, right? And listen, we come by this honestly, okay? We come by this fear of female desire honestly. Here's the first story I ever learned about the universe and women. So God made this garden, okay, I'm eight. God made this garden, all right? He put man in it. Man was lonely and bored, so then, God made women, a woman out of man's body. I remember being like, but aren't, don't women give birth to men? This is the first right. time I've heard that, right? This is like, okay, this is like biblical alternative facts, right? right? Okay, These so fake, 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 fake news. news, fake news. Actually, no, men give birth, give birth to women. And then the woman wanted something and she went for it. And then the whole freaking world fell apart. We are taught very, very wow. early right. not to trust female desire. And because of that, we think deep in our bones that what we want is shameful and dangerous and will destroy the world. For sure. Okay? And it's just not true. When we get to what women really want, which I get to hear all the time because I'm on the road speaking to honest women all the time. You know, what women really want is love, real love, um, freedom, equality, good sex, good food, sharing in power, right? Um, what women want is good and true and should be trusted. And when we think hard about who's teaching women that what they want will destroy worlds, there we have patriarchy, mm -hmm. right? And so the really interesting thing is when you start considering that maybe if women started to go after what they wanted, worlds would crumble. And maybe those are the exact worlds that, that need, need to, crumble. to crumble. Exactly. So that our creation can be rebuilt on something truer and fairer and less patriarchal. 
So I think that what we are finding in our time and our culture right now is that women are starting to figure out that what they want is true and good. And when that happens, things are going to get interesting. They are. They are. Mm-hmm. So you decided to leave the marriage. Yep. And there's that passage in the book where your, fa- your entire family is staring at you and, and you have to just say, I got to go. Yeah. But the beautiful thing I want to say about that is uh, that you both worked really hard mm-hmm. um, in therapy. And in the end, you refer to each other as healing partners, mm-hmm. that you had right. come into that marriage equally broken. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really the end result of not being together didn't matter. What mattered was that you had been a part of each other's healing and are still very much a part of each other's lives and co-parenting. Absolutely. And probably like and respect each other more than we ever have before. I mean, I think people need to be really careful with their language about marriage because somebody said to me recently in an interview, somebody who wasn't quite as evolved as you are, she said, God, all that work, and then your marriage failed. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so interesting. Never, not for one minute in my existence, have I considered that my marriage was a failure. Right? Craig and I were brought to each other right. to help each other heal. Right? When, when I married Craig, I was a freaking disaster. I'd been sober for like four minutes. Okay, I was just learning how to be a human being. I had all of this pain and unhealed, open, gaping wounds. He had wounds that I didn't even know about yet. Right? We left each other. We did the hard, hard, hard work of forgiveness. Right? We stayed on our mats. We did all the work it took to forgive each other. And then we left each other wholer and braver and stronger and better people. And loving each other, not judging each other. Right. Like you said, the way you began this conversation. Right. So we think, we both think of, of our marriage as a raging success. And I don't even think of it as a failing or, or, or even ending. It just was complete. Right? We had completed our contracts to each right. other. Um, and it was time for both of us to begin again. But it really is a testament to love because you're very much in each other's lives. Every day. Very, very, right. Every day. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We we can get into more of that later. But yeah, he is a very daily um, part of my life. And I cannot imagine that there's a better father on the earth than he is to our kids. So this this was your contract. This was the role. Yeah. He was your healing partner. Yeah. He got and, me to a good place. And another sure. thing that was amazing, another another real act of bravery was as Love Warrior was being published, was really going out into the world, and the people around you, the team around you and your family or any of your advisors knew what the truth was, knew that here's this book about we're all going to be rooting for this marriage to succeed, and you already knew the marriage was dissolving. Yeah. And everyone told you, you can't tell. You can't let anybody know. And you really stood in that truth and said, Momastery is not created on that platform. Mm-hmm. And was there a moment where you wavered, or were you at that point resolute and standing in your truth? No, I mean, the only wavering had to do with timing. Like, at what point do we do I tell, say all this? Do I tell? I mean, it's very interesting to be a professional truth teller, right? Because... <laughs> Because it's like a public truth teller. It's like, okay. Do your kids catch you on that, by the way? Oh, totally. Well, I mean, I definitely lie to my kids. Let's not be ridiculous. But I think that 
it's it's tricky because it's like if you're a truth teller, then do you keep nothing to yourself? Right? Is there a difference between um, secrets and privacy? This is right. a dance, right? This is a dance. I mean, I um, owe the world the truth, but I do not owe the world my whole life and my whole heart. I, I can't live that way. So anyway, that was a dance I had to walk, and we I thought that through a million times over with all of the people that I love in my life. And what it came down to was I can keep my life to myself in ways that I choose. However, this part of my story I had made public, and I made those choices all along. And so, and Liz, my dear friend Liz Gilbert helped me with this. Um, because I had shared this story so publicly and because my, my marriage was such a part of my work, I knew that I owed the truth about that in real time to my people. So yeah, I announced our separation, I think it was like three weeks before the release of Love right. Warrior, right. which my everybody was like, oh, this is gonna disaster. ruin the book, it's a disaster. Right. Right. Nobody's gonna buy this truth book. Truth is never a disaster. No, it's truth always the right thing. It's so hilarious how right. we're like, oh, maybe in this situation the truth is not the best policy. Right. Like, <laughs> never. Always it is. All the times, right? right? Yeah. So, and for me, it's okay because I have understood, because I'm so outspoken and I say my entire platform and life is built on telling the truth, whether it's like popular or easy, I have always known that all of this could go away in a hot second. Right, that is a daily thing for me. That that, and, and I think it probably will. Like, I don't know that anybody can speak out as as much as I do, especially now in my activism, that it doesn't eventually cause major repercussions. So, for me, success is not, you know, keeping as many followers as possible or selling as many books as possible. Success for me is like going to bed at night and knowing that I lived as honestly and truthfully and honorably as I possibly could that day. Right. And then whoever sticks around are the people who were supposed to stick around. But if I'm keeping people or readers based on a version of myself that's not my truest self, that is that will never feel like success for me. You use a term I love also, unbecoming Glennon. Mm -hmm. But you had to unbecome Glennon to mm -hmm. become the real Glennon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, um, a great, just great takeaway for people to think about. Sort of like, you know, we have, we, to allow yourself to peel back those layers. Yeah. It's, it's the Russian nesting doll idea, right? Right. It's like we spend our 20s and our 30s becoming things. I will become a wife, I will become a mother, I will become a working woman, I will become the PTA president, I will become a blah, 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 blah. And then, oh my God, we realize at some point that all of that didn't make us happy, right? That it didn't do whatever it promised us it would do. And then something happens, usually to me and my friends, it's always been 40s, that is the catalyst to unbecoming all of these things. I'm convinced we don't have to learn anything new, that we were born knowing everything we need to know. But that wisdom comes from unlearning all the crap that this world has accidentally taught us since we've gotten here. So where has the unbecoming led you today? <laughs> um, well, one way that I can describe this is that I feel like the process of Love Warrior, which was figuring out how to listen to that voice inside and really just become that whole voice. Right? My whole being now is that voice. Like I can, I've just figured out a way to just embody it and stop 
writing about it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and not second guess it anymore. Right. You know, and not like analyze it to death. I, I think that women, we tend to, even when we hear from the voice, we um, want to. We're consensus takers. So instead of just so listening to it, this? we need to call sixty right. friends. <laughs> Right? And just be like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Do you think? Right. This is what I'm thinking. Do you think blah, blah, blah? Right. And the hilarious things is that our friends don't even know what they want, they need to do in their life, but we think they're going to know what we need to do in our right. life. But they've got opinions for us. Of course, because it's easier to think about what you should do than sit, stay at my house and think about what I should do. That's right. why we all want to talk to each other about each other's lives, right? right? So, and just, you know, we have a system. We call all of our wise friends first, and then we save the last one, the one who will tell us what we want to hear for the end. So we can just do that thing, right? So what I figured out is that it's, it takes too much time to be a consensus taker, right? I want to do big things and live honestly and truthfully and with integrity. And I love my friends, but it is not their job to know what I should do with my life. It is not anybody else's job, right? We have to stop asking people for directions to places they've never been. Nobody oh, has ever that. been us. Yeah. They don't know. It's, and it's a powerless and, and, and wimpy thing to do to keep asking, right? So... What I figured out is that I can do this, this next right thing without asking for permission first. Oh my God. And then the best part is I can do it without explaining myself later, right? Because we, women, we have our pre thing and our post thing. So first we ask for permission, consensus. Then we do the thing. Then we spend the next year and a half justifying that thing to everyone we know. Well, you know, I had to do it because she's such a jerk. And let me tell you the six things she did that made me leave this relationship. Right? Oh, the most revolutionary thing a woman can do is not explain herself. Can you imagine living this way? It's almost like living like a man. Right. You know? <laughs> right? So you just don't ask permission. You just do the next right thing. Then you don't explain yourself. And if you made a mistake, guess what? You just backtrack and try something else. It is... Not the end of the world to make the wrong decision. You just try again. So that's where I, I am now. I, I feel ever so slightly fearless, right? Because I've already lost everything that was supposed to kill me to lose. It didn't kill me. Um, still standing most days on 10%. Are you truly fearless? Tell the truth. Um, I'm fearless in terms of knowing that the world won't end no matter what happens. I thought that the worst thing that could happen to me was that I would ruin my children's lives. I, I thought that divorce would ruin my children's lives. I thought um, that I would crush them beyond all being. And that was the one thing I thought I couldn't do. That's why I stayed for so long. And then I did that. And everyone's okay. There was pain. There was pain. And that pain belonged to my children because it was part of their, their path, right? And I think that the mistake that we make as parents is that we think our job is to protect our children from their pain. And to, yeah, exactly. And it is not our job nor our right. It's a disservice. Right. No, it's, it's, it is it's not really arrogant, our right. It's really arrogant, actually. It's stealing. Yeah. Because all of our wisdom and wholeness and courage comes from the pain of our lives. And so, you know, wise people and uh, brave people and resilient people and kind people are not people who have had nothing to overcome. They are people who have overcome and overcome and overcome. So we are trying to protect our children from the one thing that will allow them to become the people we dream they'll be. So we want our kids to grow up to be wise and kind and brave and resilient. And if we want that for them, then we have to let them struggle and overcome.
right? So I, I brought a, a lot of pain to my children last year. And then I walked them through it, right? And then we made it through, and, and you know, I didn't tell them that their pain wasn't real. You know, I didn't distract them from it. I just pointed at them directly to it every day, and I said, look, I see your fear, and I see your pain, and it's real, and it's big, but I also see your strength, and I see your courage, and it's bigger. So let's just get in the fire again today, right? And now they know that the worst has happened to them and that they survived it. They've got to be a little bit more fearless. So in that big cosmic way, I'm fearless. In the daily way, I'm scared all the time, right? Like for this interview, for the next thing I do, for speaking tonight. For, I'm just a raging pile of anxiety about daily things. Skited? Skited, yes. We call it skited in my house. Right. So the butterflies, right? The, the half scared, half excited, skited. I live skited for sure. But I, what I have figured out is that, um, that nobody who I know who's doing awesome world healing work in their families or in, or in you know, shiny ways feels prepared to do it, right? It's just that some people show up even before they feel ready. And those are the people who are doing all the good work in the world, are just people who show up scared. What a beautiful gift to give your children, to empower them at such a young age to know that they will come face to face with things that are brutal mm -hmm. and things that are painful and things that will crack them open, but to also know that they can come through it mm -hmm. and that there will be gifts. And you're not, again, making light of this, but you stand as testament to that. Mm -hmm. And Craig stands as testament mm -hmm. to that and your relationship stands as testament to that, which is a beautiful gift. I think so. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Yeah, and hopefully they won't be as afraid of pain as most people are. I really think it might be the definition of freedom, to not be afraid of pain. I mean, these are conversations we never had. No. No. I did not know that until yesterday. <laughs> I didn't, know that. I didn't know that until about five minutes ago. Yeah. yeah, it would have been helpful to know about 20 years ago. But yeah. Hey, look, we got her as fast as we could. It's the only uh, timing is exactly what it is. We're, truth reveals itself to us when we're ready for it, I think. And that's why it's so annoying the way this life is designed. Because, and I look at my kids and I think, oh my God, I can't, I know, I know all the things. Just listen to me. Yeah, I, got I could it. save so much suffering for you. No, everybody has to learn it, their own path. There's no one size fits no, all? No, can't pass it down. So did you think that there was room for another love story? No. I thought that I ran monastery so that I would just be monkish for the rest of my life because this whole I could not figure out the love thing, right? I'm like the love warrior who had no freaking idea what romantic love was in any way. I mean, a lot of love warriors, me trying to figure out love with my head, right? Because I had, I don't think I had ever actually experienced romantic love in my life. So I didn't understand what anybody was talking about. I hated romantic comedies. I didn't understand them. I thought they were, people were flaky. I used to say, you know, love is a light. And some people use their light like a laser on one person. And I'm just more like a floodlight. I just love the whole world. I used to tell myself crap like this. I used to believe it. 
supposed to believe myself, okay? So um, no, I, the most amazing thing about life is that you can think you have it all figured out. You can think you know what your life's gonna look like and then it just keeps surprising you. Life just can surprise you in such amazing, beautiful ways. It just keeps us on our toes. So do tell, how did it surprise you? Yeah, so I fell in love um, with a woman. Da, 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 da. Her name's Abby. Um, I'm about to marry her in a second. All I can say is that I feel like, I felt like I was living my whole life. You know those, you know Wizard of Oz, how it's like black and white? The whole beginning of the movie. And then there's this one scene and everything just comes to color. color. And you don't even realize until you see it in color that you were watching it in black and white before. Right? You were so used to it, you just thought that's what it looked like. And then it comes to color and you're like, I didn't even know what I was missing before. That's the best way that I can describe how my life's been since I met Abby. And so how has that unfolded in your personal life, in your professional life? Well, it was just another layer of trusting myself. I mean, I come from all kinds of backgrounds that would tell me that this wasn't right or good or true. Or, but I'd already, know, I'd already learned not to trust those voices, right? The heart right? loves what the heart loves. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, it was just another step of, of um, you know, world, bless your heart. You just go ahead, you do your world thing. Yeah. You freak out and fret just right. as much as you need to, world. And I'm just going to keep doing my thing, right? So when you are ready, just come back. That's what I said to everybody, right? I mean, luckily my kids, the, the woman and woman thing didn't bother them much because I've been like a raging gay activist for a decade. So my kids have actually been to more gay pride parades than Abby has, right? <laughs> <laughs> my kids are better gay activists than Abby is, I'll tell you that. So that part they were ready for. Um, Our kids are so, oh God. so advanced and so smart. Well, and also it's just, it's taught me a lot about making sure that you are living your values with your children out loud before they affect you personally. Right. I know so Otherwise many. Otherwise, they're gonna call you on it. Well, and 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 like I know so many people who are in the Christian world or whatever, and they don't believe this crap that the Christian church teaches about gays and all of this, but they don't say anything. It's just like why it's just rocking the boat. It doesn't affect them personally, so they let their kids listen to this crap. And then one of their kids turns out to be gay, and then bum, bum. right, and then they have to unteach. They have to go back and say, oh, oh um, actually, we don't believe it. And then, and then on some level, their they kids never believe them. Right. Their kids never believe them because they knew that they were the catalyst to get their parents to change. That is no longer okay. Right. Like, if you are in a church or an institution that is teaching something that is outside the bounds of love and equality and justice, your job is to speak up about it before it affects you directly. Right. And God, that's like the basis of everything now, right? That's the basis of all activism right now. But I've learned it really well this way. Like, thank God that I spoke up about um, gay rights for other people's children before it affected my own children because there was no change of values in my family. My children understood this as a continuation of the truth of who our family is as opposed to a separation from the truth. Right. right, which is why my children were able to embrace it completely. So that's just an important aside. Like, you just do it before, before. Do it for your children. Do it for other people's children. 
Um, raise your hand when something's not true, whether you think it affects you or not. We knew early that we had found the most important thing in the world, right? We knew it was very clear to both of us that we had found this love thing that is what all the great stories are written about that is like the, the holy grail of life, right? So other people's fear kind of shrunk in the, in the reality of that, right? Nobody was going to take it from us. We knew that. So we just imagined ourselves as like a little island with a moat around us and with alligators in the moat. We would actually envision this. And then what we would tell each other is no lies in. No lies in. Which meant that everybody could have their fear, and fear is always a lie, right? So everybody could have their drama and their fear and their judgment, and that was fine. It just wasn't coming to our island, right? And then the second part of that was we would tell each other only love out, only love off the island. Because what we figured out is fear is just like, oftentimes, it's just love holding its breath. A lot of the fear that was coming at us was from people that loved us. They were just so scared for us, not of us, just for us. And it came across as fear, but it was not our job to convince them right. ever. It was just our and job really, to it love scared, them. Scared, you know, fear for you, or was it just their own fear? I don't know. I mean, I think some of it came from a, a, a sweet, honest place. I mean, I think that, you know, I talk to kids whose parents are dealing with their coming out, and their parents are having such a hard time. And it's so easy and, and, and maybe sometimes right for these kids to rage against their parents, but it's sometimes more peaceful to think, baby, you're okay, and your mama's not scared of you. She's just scared for you, right? She's, she looks out at the world, and sometimes she thinks it's going to be, the world's going to be so hard on you, and it'll just be easier to change you than to change the world. And one of those two things has to happen, mm. right? And I just call BS on that. Right? I would rather fight my whole life to change the entire world than change one hair on my kid's head. We preemptively, I think, bring fear to our children because we're fearful of the world, but we're bringing it to them, right? Sometimes we just have to say, I am completely on your side and we will handle together whatever the world brings to us. But the, th the problem is that when a child or, or an adult like me thinks that, that it's my job to um, put you in your place about your fear, it's just too exhausting. And, and frankly, I was too happy to take on that job, right? So only love out. The people who loved me who, would, who felt angry or, or hurt or, or fearful, I, they would bring it to me and I would say that. You sound so afraid. Tell me more. That's it. I love you. I'm okay. I want you to be okay. And I would say, but you can't come to us until you accept us completely because we're not going to allow your fear near us. But I'm not trying to convince you. Take forever. Right. Take a decade. Take 20 years. Never see us again if that's what is necessary. Right. You just can't come here with any fear. There's not one person in my closest circle or in the circle outside of that, who didn't eventually see my okayness and say, okay. And who isn't now completely. Right. Right. Nobody that matters to me anyway. I think that what people need to be okay is for us to be okay. And when they can see your unshakable peace and when they can see you're not desperate to convince them, because you don't even need that. You're so okay that you don't even need them to be okay. 
somehow everybody takes a deep breath. So that's practicing truth-telling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And standing in it. One thing I want to make sure that we don't, we don't gloss over is your activism mm-hmm. and how you've just become revolutionary. And something tells me that you came into this world as a little spitfire, even if you didn't know mm-hmm. what you were meant to do with it. Yeah. So tell us about Together Rising. Yeah. Well, I mean, Together Rising is our nonprofit that was born organically out of the blog, really. Just, I think, when women are filled up, which is what we do at Monastery, we just tend to spill out into our communities. So it started very small, just like helping um, each other through Christmases, and now um, it's turned into an international movement. We've raised, I think, over $7 million now for women and children in crisis all over the world. Um, Our major focus abroad right now is refugee relief. At home, we do all kinds of first responding to um, people in need here, family, one family at a time, but we also partner with a lot of homeless organizations, especially this year, the LGBTQ community is just the largest growing homeless community in the um, country because they, they're being rejected by their families. Yeah, I mean, Together Rising is, is the most important thing I do, I think. It's, I think every word that I speak or write is really about Together Rising. I think that that's how the world works, right? It gives us these gifts and these talents, and certainly writing is one of mine, speaking is one of mine. But these are just hooks, right? The universe has you use your talent, and that's just the hook it gets you to the service lane. Right. What happened to me is that I became a writer. A writer's job is to look carefully. That's it. To look more carefully than the average bear at people and things. To notice things that other people don't notice. And then to tell about them. And what happens inevitably to artists who are looking at people carefully is that they fall in love with people. All right, you can't get close to another human being and really see them without falling in love in some way. Um, and so what happens then is that when you're an artist and you're, you're looking closely and you're, you're falling in love, you want to surf, right? So then that takes you to, to philanthropy and charity work, right? And then this crazy thing happens, which is that, so this is what happened to me. I was in Together Rising work. My sleeves were rolled up. I was in refugee relief work. I, we were doing the homeless work. We were I'm, every day just inundated with need, need, need. You know, people couldn't pay their bills. People couldn't pay their medical bills. People couldn't get, keep their lights on. Refugees had no homes. And, and I, at one point I thought, what is causing all of this? And I read this quote that said, you can only pull people out of the river for long enough till you want to look down the river and see who's pushing them in. Right? So, so many people I'm trying to pull out of the water and I'm like, wait, where, why? Why do these people not have homes? Why can these people not pay their bills? Why are these people hungry? Why are these kids not getting served? That's when I figured out I gotta look further down the river, up the river, right? Because people are generally doing the best they can, which means if there is this much need, there are institutions who are creating policies that are making this need inevitable. So that's why people who are paying close enough attention in philanthropy become activists, because there's an and both there. I am still committed to pulling people out of the water because that's my honor and joy on earth and because I've been in a, a woman or a child in crisis most of my life, <laughs> right? So this is the circle for me, is women have helped me. So I want to help. But I'm not going to do that anymore unless I'm also asking questions and showing up on the doors of these institutions that are, co- why are so many LGBTQ kids homeless? 
because there's institutions that are telling their families, you, this is shame. This is shame, get it out of your house. Back to that word. Right. So I can keep helping these kids over here, but I also need to be showing up at the church and saying, what the hell are you teaching these families? Right. And why? Yeah. So art leads you to philanthropy. Philanthropy leads you to activism. I see it again and again and again. And of course, activism is scarier than charity work. It's scary to knock on the doors of institutions and sh you know, shake those um, cages. It's also great fun. Where is this leading you right now? What's the next, like what's the vision? I know you've got the wedding, which is amazing. Yeah, That's very right soon. By the time this comes out, you will be married. I'll be married! But what's next? What's next for you? I'm supposed to be writing another book right now. I have uh, zero words of that done, so I hope my editor doesn't watch this interview. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be coming right along. Listen, I um, feel super strongly about diving into this relationship that I'm in right now and really feeling and living romantic love. And I care less now about telling about it. I've done that, I've been there, I've seen the price that, it, that you have to pay for it. I have so much empathy for Craig now when I look back on that time in my life, not because of the telling of it, not because of the writing of it, but because of the way you live with another person when you know you're writing about it. Because the whole freaking thing becomes an experiment, right? It's a social experiment. I'm not here with you, Craig. I'm listening to what you say, saying, what does that teach me about everyone universally about Israel? So then how does that person ever feel surrendered and comfortable and safe? It's really interesting about memoirists, right? It's like that Nora Ephron thing that everything is copy. That's one way to live, and I'm not sure it's safe to anybody around you. Joan Didion said a writer will always sell you out. Right? Well, you did say in the book, you said, this is my family. These are real people. This is not material. Yeah. Except that it was, because I was <laughs> writing about it. <laughs> it's so not interesting, it. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, I know, and, and look, I don't have regrets. Right. Like that book did exactly what it was supposed to be, and it made me the woman I am today, and I wouldn't change it for anything, and neither would Craig. All right, he's very happy now. <laughs> he's, he's happy. But I just have, I, you, I'd be an idiot not to learn from it, right? I don't ever want Abby to feel like she's material. So what I'm doing right now is rethinking boundaries in my life and figuring out what I want to keep for myself and what I owe to the world. Because I know the rest of my life I will owe to the world. I feel strongly about that. I will never stop showing up. It's just like what version of my life am I going to keep for myself? I have learned that um, what you give away between two people, you do not get to keep between two people, right? So. I am going to figure that out. I'm going to figure out how to keep my relationship with Abby, which is the most precious thing in my life, safe first. And then, you know, what I think is most important to me in my work is that I think that there's never been a more important time for um, people of uh, equality and people of love and people of justice and people who actually believe in the American ideals of equality and justice for all show up relentlessly and, and wisely and loudly. I think that, that 
I and, and many other women were put on the earth for just such a time as this. I think uh, the, the, the world needs brave women more than it ever has needed brave women. And I'm excited about that. I think that there's because of that, there's certainly never been a time when there's been more mis raging misogyny in the air. And that's scaring push people. Back. Of course, it's a, push, it's a dying gasps right. of patriarchy, right? It's right. beautiful. It's desperate. And so because there's never been more blazing misogyny in the air, it's also never been more important for brave women to start to speak up anyway. So that's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna keep doing the next right thing and I'm not gonna allow the powers that be to scare me into not doing and saying what I know is true and right. You know, I wanna be able to look at my kids when they ask me what I did during this time. And I want them to be able to say that their mom showed up and did everything she could to, to guide uh, this place into uh, a, a direction that's based on love and, and, and the belief that there is no such thing as, as other people's children. Right? So that's what I'm going to do. I, wanted, I sat down with my kids after the Charleston shooting and um, talked to them a lot about the civil rights movement. Tish and I were looking at pictures of a march, and Anna said, um, Hey, Mom, if we lived back then, would we have been marching? And I almost said, Yeah. Of course we would. Of course we would have. Right. And Tish said, Oh, no, Emma, we wouldn't have been. I mean, we're not marching now. And that was the moment for me. Mm, smack. Where I was like, oh my God. We all think we would have shown up. Yeah. We Isn't all think true? we would have shown up during the Holocaust. Right. We all think we would have shown up during slavery. We all think we would have shown up during the civil rights movement. But what if the best indicator of how we would have shown up during those moments are how we're showing up in this moment, in this civil rights moment, right? If I am not marching now, I sure as hell wouldn't have been marching then. I would have been one of the silent, complicit sheep, right? right? So anyway, I want my kids to look back on this time and see their own faces in those marches. I don't want them to just say, oh, my mom. I want them to say, my mom dragged me along, right? That's it. Romantic love and universal love. That's pretty, what I'm going to concentrate it's on. Pretty tall order. Yeah, I like it. I like it. You got I am it. not afraid. Hey, listen, I was born love, to do this. Exactly. Right. What is it? Love, pain, fear. I was born to do this. Born to do this. I'm going to just close this with just a quote from from Elizabeth Lesser mm -hmm. about redemption. Redemption is living your life using the difficulty for something, wasting nothing. That's amazing. And, and I feel like that That's embodies exactly you. It. And mm -hmm. I feel that, you know, I, I want to thank you for showing up here today. Mm. I want to thank you for showing up for everyone that gets this beautiful book in their hands and every other book that there is to come. For, you know, showing up for activism, mm -hmm. for the world, for your children, teaching them to walk through that fire. Mm. Thank you so much. For this has been amazing. Doing. You are a wonderful person to talk to. Thank you for your work. You are amazing. Thanks for being in it. Thanks for being in I it, am in it. I, yes. I, I am in it. I am a mom. I'm a mama star. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
Learn more at bestselfmedia.com.